In this episode, Dwala CEO Brady Harris and I chat about the fintech space and how Dwala saves businesses a tremendous amount of money by lowering transaction fees. We also chat about his experience working with private equity and venture capital investors and who he thinks is the smartest person in fintech. I particularly liked his insights on leadership and today's best CEO. I'm your host, RJ Lumba. We hope you enjoy the show. Brady, great to chat with you today. I'd actually like to hop right in and talk about the payment space. I want to start off here because for many of our listeners who have kind of broad knowledge of the tech sector, we hear a lot about payments and there's a lot of activity and there's a lot of capital that's going into payments and fintech. Tell us about where Dwala sits and kind of how it's different than the other payment solutions out there. Yeah, I would love to. Thanks for having me, RJ. So I've been in what today we call the payments industry for the better part of 20 years. And when you think about payments, there's really two big, what we call payment rails or modalities. One side would be merchant services. So those would be the card issuing banks, your Visa MasterCard payment rails. And then the other one is ACH. And ACH is for the most part, viewed a little bit discriminatory. A lot of people see it as legacy tech that banks have and use. And so when it comes to kind of the new sexy fintech, in what ways can you adapt new payment technologies, ACH hasn't really been included in that conversation. So I've spent most of my you know, working life on the card side of payments. And now with Dwala for the first time with ACH, And so it's really interesting when you think about maybe a payments matrix and and you put everybody who is in payments in various quadrants of that matrix, usually it's separated by things like the speed of deposits or transfer times. So with a card, generally a business is going to get those funds in 24 to, to 72 hours. ACH is usually 24 to 72 hours. So they're really similar in that regard. But the other differentiator is in what ways can you collect the either card information on the card side or the bank information on the ACH side. And so when you look at Dwalin and kind of where we sit in that larger payment landscape, we compete with a lot of the bigger banks. We compete with a little bit on the card side. But one thing we've started to do that's just really interesting is we've started to solve for some of those gaps that had previously been an impediment to ACH, namely being able to be an alternative to a card payment rail. And we've done that through things like real-time payments. So we've partnered with some global fintechs and some financial institutions that are fintech-friendly to get on the Clearinghouse's RTP network. And we just launched that a few months ago. I say Dwala is a a B2B facilitator. We transfer payments upwards of $40 billion a year in gross payment volume. And we're really looking to solve for that middle TAM, that total available market, that space that sits in between historically what has been cards on one side and ACH on the other. That payment volume is tremendous. Why are businesses opting for ACH Is it lower cost? It sounds like the timing is comparable in terms of the transmission time. Yeah, there's a couple things. So we call it funds flow. So if you're running a business, you have to look at your fund flow requirement. If I have a gas pump 
it probably doesn't make sense to have every one of my customers enter in their account and routing information to fill up their car with gas. That's a consumer preference in terms of the payment rail that's most applicable to their business. So part of what drives clients to an ACH product is it just makes the most sense for their business model. If you can capture that bank information, and we've created some dashboards and some API that make that really simple, then it's preferable to cards. And you called out one of the reasons for that is when you consider the total cost to run a card over a payment rail or a card rail like Visa or MasterCard, you generally are going to pay what's called interchange or a discount rate. It's a percentage of the total transaction. You'll pay a transaction fee on top of it, generally ranging from 20 cents to 40 cents. And then you have a bunch of ancillary fees. When you blend all those together, you really are paying about 3 to 4% of the total transaction to run it on those card networks. On the ACH side, you pay pennies on the dollar. So it's much lower costs. And again, what we have tried to solve for is if deposit or transit time has historically been a blocker to adopting ACH technology, some of our new modalities like that real-time payments, push to debit or push to card, these are all different ways that we've expanded from the core functionality of ACH that really drives clients to our platform. And to the point you make about the gross payment volume metric, I want to say the beginning of 2020, we were right around 20, 25 billion in volume. So our payment volume has just scaled really quite exponentially coming out of COVID and it just continues to pick up speed. We think one of the driving forces of that is as ACH starts to do what cards can and truthfully more when you layer in the cost savings of an ACH transaction, it's just, it's pretty compelling from a business standpoint to adopt that technology. Which industries are most applicable here for the CEOs that are listening in that run their companies? They could be saying, wow, I'd like to dramatically lower the cost of transactions, running transactions. Which industries are most suited for ACH? That's a timely question that you ask. And I've been really close to that data internally only because we just finished a fundraise. As to be expected, that's a data room item. That's something investors really want to understand is how we segment and how we view our current customer base. So when we looked under the hood of all the businesses and clients that are using our ACH product or our payment API, One really interesting thing emerged, and that was there is not one dominant or majority industry or vertical that has been attracted to our platform. In fact, I think we identified 170-something, maybe 176 distinct industries or verticals that currently use our platform. There's a couple that I think are maybe emerging trends or we're seeing a lot of client adoption. Part of that is in things like financial marketplaces. So other fintechs that are building a product where there's a payment component to that product, we're starting to power a lot of other fintech companies and fintech products. So you might have, for example, a customer that is trying to build an invoicing or reporting software for the gig economy. Well, as part of that software, they need a payment piece to facilitate those payouts, those disbursements or incoming funds 
for their customers. So instead of building out a payment product from scratch, other fintechs or payment companies will come to us really quickly integrate with our API and they instantaneously have this world-class payment product at a fraction of what it would have cost to build it themselves and they get to market in one month versus a year and a half to two and a half years. So we're seeing a lot of marketplaces. We see a lot of insurance type companies, really anything that falls under B2B or B2C. Those are some really exciting trends. We're seeing the type of businesses on our platform. So if Stripe charges 2.9% on the transaction value, what would ACH be? I understand yeah. there's a flat kind of transaction fee of 20 cents or whatever it is, 50 cents. On the percentage side, what's the differential? There's a lot of ways we can price with a client. So it's, and this is not me dodging, but mm-hmm. there's so many different unique circumstances where a business might say, okay, we need to do up to 10,000 transactions a month. So direct client to Dwala thinks they're going to need to do 10,000 transactions per month. Well, within that 10,000 transactions, it gets even a little bit more specific on are those disbursements? Are those outgoing or are they incoming? And then you have to consider things like, are you okay client with the, the normal 48 or 72 hour deposit time? Or do you need same day ACH? Or do you need real time payments? So to get that transaction done within seconds. So those are all some important considerations. No matter what modalities you adopt with us, real-time, same-day, next-day, push-to-card, mass transfers, all of these like really cool features of our ACH product, even if you stack all those up, you're still going to pay 75 to 85% less than you would on a discount rate on a percentage of the transaction. So it's really, really cost advantageous. One really unique thing we also do from a pricing standpoint is we've adopted for our scale clients more of a SaaS or subscription model. So unlike payments traditionally that you're paying on a per transaction basis, again, a a percentage in a transaction fee, we've really adopted the SaaS pricing model where maybe a business says, hey, we're going to do this much in volume and transactions. This is the functionality that we need. This is the level of support that we're going to require. And we say, okay, let's bundle that all together and say a $1,500 a month subscription fee. And that gives them a certain allotment. So pricing is probably the top three reasons that people will come to us, either from direct competitors or will switch from cards to us. And then it's really the programmatic kind of flexible nature of our API, solving for really unique fund flow cases and requirements that our customers have. Got it. Now, switching gears, you mentioned the recent fundraise. Congrats on that. Can we chat a little bit about it? We've got a lot of investors in our audience. Yeah, we'd love to. My vocal cords are nice and warm. That was about a three or four month process. And yeah, I was speaking to a lot of VCs and private equity. So I'm all warmed up. Was it announced? Can you tell us who did the round? Yeah, we did. It was announced a few weeks ago. So Foundry Group out of Boulder, Colorado, really cool VC and and actually an existing investor in Douala led our round. And then we had participation from USV, Union Square Ventures, another great fintech-friendly VC out of New York. In fact, they were just part of Coinbase's IPO. They were a Series A investor there and have just had some really great funds in their portfolio. 
And we have participation from Next Level Ventures, which is a Midwest VC, Park West Asset Management, really big institutional investor who's looking to get into all things fintech, specifically payments. Then we had a couple smaller investors, people like Firebrand Ventures, and then some strategics. One in particular, Jeremy Andrus, who your listeners might know is the CEO of Traeger, who recently IPO'd. He was also a personal investor in the round. When you're, as someone who's as experienced, and I know you have background with private equity as well, what do you think differentiates a good investor from a great investor? Yeah. Oh, man. I'm going to offend some of the the VCs and private equity listening right now. So I'm classically trained in the PE world. I've participated in, I I think, four transactions at this point. So with Dwalla, this was my first foray into all things venture capital. It's been really interesting just to see the differences of private equity versus venture capital. But one thing that really emerged and I came to understand, and this applies in private equity, but I think even more so in the VC world's is there, there are two distinct type of investors. I started using the Wayne Gretzky quote of, and I'm paraphrasing, but something to the effect of, you don't skate to where the puck is, you skate to where the puck is headed. And a lot of VCs are frankly pretty lazy or investors can be lazy. They look at what was your most recent fiscal year return? So what was your top line revenue growth? What are you forecasting this year? And that's pretty much it. If you clear a 30 or a 40 or a 50% revenue growth number, then that's really the bulk of the due diligence and they want to pile into the investment. So it's lazy in the sense that a lot of VCs are not willing to pop up the hood and not just look at where the business has been, but really view it strategically and where is this business going. The biggest returns are those that have a certain element of risk to them. If you're just wanting to jump on a 100% or a 50% revenue growth company, at that point, usually that growth is not going to continue. And if it is, you're getting in at a really rich premium or multiple. So the really savvy, smart investors that I've come to appreciate is they say, okay, this business, it's cleared some return hurdles that we might have. We more so care about where is it going to be two years from now or four years from now or five years from now. And if they're willing to do that intellectual work and the modeling and the analysis on an opportunity, there's some really good businesses out there. And those are generally the funds that have the best IRR or best return rates. That's one really like big thing that kind of separated good from great and kind of mediocre investors that I've worked with, especially through the fundraise is, can they see what we see? And do they want to be part of it knowing that those returns are really strong because of strong fundamentals in the business? Is there an investor either that's working with you currently or that you've been in touch with in the past or that you know of either on the private equity or venture capital side who you think has been particularly adept at counseling and giving advice? Yeah, I can tell you, I'll stay away from ones that (laughs) I maybe wouldn't have favorable things to say. I've had a bunch of really good private equity sponsors. Parthenon Capital out of Boston is a recent one. Really great team that I've worked closely with on a previous transaction. They were great at not just being able to see where the puck is headed, but they're really adept at consulting the management team and working in a way that it's not intrusive, but they're bringing a lot of value to either the board or to the relationship as a strategic investor. 
Ontario Teachers, really big institutional private equity fund. They've got really great teams. I was also part of some transactions with Lindsay Goldberg with Bessemer out of New York. I've got to call out our current investors. And this is not just because they've put significant money into the business, but groups like USV, Foundry Group, Next Level, these are all ones that, I mean, these guys are doing deals like Twitter and Twilio and Coinbase and Fitbit, but they bring the same effort and the same, I think, resources and support to the smaller portfolio companies that maybe are doing $5 million a month and they bring a lot of value too. There's some really good ones out there. And when I find them, I love to kind of wrap my arms around them and hopefully have a long-term relationship. Who do you think the smartest person is in fintech? Cool, oh, man. There's a lot of really smart people. I'm biased, but I work really closely with Ben Milne. Ben is the original founder of Dwala. He was my predecessor. So I came into the business to replace Ben as the operating CEO. I'm still on the board with Ben. When you look at Ben, he is really, especially amongst the ranks of those who have been in fintech and payments for a long time, he's considered a godfather of all things fintech. The technology that he built and the vision that he had in trying to solve for this side of the payment rails was really revolutionary. I always refer to him as kind of like Russell Crowe in A Beautiful Mind, you know, and he's up on the glass kind of writing weird 3D formulas and models and people can't really keep up with his brain. That's very much Ben Milne. And so we're really lucky to still have him today in the business. We get to use him on a lot of things related to strategy and the vision for the product his ability to see ahead of the curve of what's happening in payments is just, it's unprecedented. He's a really great leader and great visionary on all things payments. Who do you think is the best CEO, past or present, regardless of industry? Regardless of industry? Oh, man. (laughs) Well, I've got a lot of friends that are CEOs. So this is, again, going to offend a lot of people. I really... Kind of one of my current favorites who I follow really closely and I've read a lot about and just really respect is Elon with Tesla. I think he just embodies this core trait that his primary motivation is the vision and mission of Tesla. And secondary to that is appeasing investors or Wall Street. The fact that he can be on an earnings call and say, hey, don't invest in Tesla. I don't care. Don't give us your money. That's not our concern. Or when he calls out that he thinks the stock is too high, I just really appreciate his authenticity. And I think prioritizing what's most important, which is the mission of Tesla and what they're trying to solve for. And he makes really good fundamental decisions for the business through a long-term lens. And that's really hard when you're an operating CEO. You're under pressure to hit your quarterly financials. You've got to get your top-line revenue growth to a certain point by the end of the year. And so that pressure from board members or from investors or from Wall Street, it can be overwhelming. And that leads to a lot of CEOs making short-term decisions to appease investors or Wall Street or their board where it might not be in the business's best interest long-term. And Elon is one that I just think he's amazing at kind of giving the middle finger to everything that he doesn't think is important. And he makes the decisions that he thinks is going to be best for Tesla and its employees over the long-term. What is your biggest challenge currently as the CEO of Dwala? I've got great access through my CEO peer groups with some of our financial sponsors. So I'm on Slack channels or email distribution lists with 
I might be exaggerating, but probably upwards of 150, maybe 175 CEOs that are running, for the most part, tech companies, but a lot of businesses. And it's a safe space where we can be really vulnerable and open with each other. And it's a great way to see, well, what are other people struggling with that are in similar roles? I think probably the most recurring theme that certainly applies to us as well is competing for good talent in the workforce or in the marketplace. Especially with the advent of work from home and the flex model, that has just really created a really competitive market for good talent where people aren't geographically limited anymore. And so you have to work harder to hang on to your good employees to keep them. And you have to work even harder to find good talent to bring in. And I don't think that's going to be changing anytime soon. That's a struggle that we're all dealing with. We're coming up on time, but I'd like to ask one last question, if I may. And that is, what is your best leadership insight? Yeah, I can tell you a lot of mistakes that I've made. And this is not being insincere. I've, for every one good leadership decision, I probably have 10 that I've learned from where it wasn't the right choice or decision. I think one that I've thought a lot about over the last year is when I came to Douala, especially in the middle of COVID-19, I really quickly learned that I don't have all the answers. And you feel pressure as an operator, especially as a new CEO, to come in with a playbook or to come in and to lean on your experience and to be able to solve every problem that the business might have and grow it to a billion dollars and ride off into the sunset. And that self-imposed pressure is real as you're running businesses. So the realization I had is that I don't have to have all the answers. I only have to organize the collective talent and maybe genius of those that I work with and assemble and organize it in a way that we can right, run the business through that mechanism versus this unilateral, I'm going to make all the decision type of approach. This idea of stewardship delegation, how do you, this is the good to great concept, right? Of how do you get the right people on the bus? And then stewardship delegation is the idea of how can you empower people? How can you give them the autonomy and the authority to make really critical business decisions for their business units or for the segments of the organization they're in charge of, and then empower them to make those decisions and to execute. And so when you give people the space and the trust and you delegate to them the authority with the resources and support that they need, people will do amazing, amazing things. And I think as just a general abstract in terms of leadership principles is it's removing the ego. It's realizing that you don't have all the answers. You don't need to have all the answers. But if you can tap into these talents and the wisdom and the insights of people that are throughout your business, then you're going to be successful if you empower the right people with the ability to make those decisions and execute on the day-to-day. Well, that's a good insight to end on. Brady, I want to thank you again for taking the time. It's been a great conversation. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for having me, RJ. 